You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Don Perel for Friday, February 24th. I'm Lily Wasserman from Drake University. Here is our first story. The title reads, Love and Lights Gallery Celebrates Journey of Human Experience by Emily Scheib. There's an image attached. It is of the um, art gallery by Courtney Peterson, now showing at Harvester Art Artist Lofts and Gallery, February 25th through 26th, and March, 20, March 4th, March 4th, 2023. The photograph is of a tree with um, art attached, and the tree has lights wrapped around it, fairy lights. The Love and Lights Art Gallery by local artist Chelsea Peterson opened this past weekend at Harvester Artist Loft and Gallery. Peterson has been featured in several, several gallery shows, but this is her first showing on her own. When I was married, my husband and I had a showing at La Ventre in South Omaha before COVID, she said. The pieces in the gallery come together to share and celebrate the journey of human experience by using figures, bold colors, and lights, Peterson said. In Love and Lights, I have over 100 pieces of art, either solo or collaborative works, between me and other artists, she said. Peterson said the opening weekend had a great turnout and it was epic. She saw lots of smiles and even some tears, which she said felt hard. The series is very personal, so I didn't know what to expect, Peterson said. There is so much color and the lights are spectacular, done with the help of my partner, Cor Hie Bay, and my property manager, Emily Globe. In addition to the art, there was a miniature fairy utopia village that was handmade with the help of other artists, and local DJ Peter the Rock played some soulful beats for dancing, she said. Peterson has been an artist with crayons since before she could remember. Her passion for art came from her ability to get lost in current time and space, yet to be mindful of every stroke, color, and creation, she said. While in high school, Peterson took art classes and was able to be a mentor her senior year. She also won a variety of awards, including Best of Show. She is self-taught in most of the meetings she worked with, but took some fundamental courses at Creighton University, she said. Her favorite medium is painting. I get a thrill working with paints, all types, all different types of canvases, walls, humans, and wood. Acrylic is my favorite on canvas, but I also love body painting with photography, she said. Body painting is quite challenging because you go all the way from start to finish. However, the challenge is fun, and so many of my models have enjoyed the experience. I've heard many different comments on what it brought out in them. Peterson didn't pursue art as a career. In the beginning, it was a coping skill for dealing with intense emotions, high and low, she said. I didn't start to pursue art as a career until I struggled with mental illness greatly in my mid-twenties and was unable to stay healthy while working and having the high stresses of a career in my field of study, she said. It began with county fairs, craft shows, and public events. Peterson has been able to share her love for art by teaching classes, some at the Heartland Family Peer Center in Omaha. She's also an advocate for the health benefits of art. I want to continue... I want to help... I want help to continue to legitimize art forms as a tool to have a healthy lifestyle balance, she said. For instance, music therapy and art therapy being recognized by state insurance. My Decade Journey is the title of Peterson's favorite piece. It took five years for her to finish, and it has many layers. It's very personal, but maybe because it is so far from the charcoal realism portraits I did on repeat for years, she said. So it's very abstract in a wide variety of mediums. Peterson continues to work on her art, a harvester artist, Lofts and Gallery, where she is a resident and community member. Committee member.
You can see more of her work at facebook.com slash 2-N-E-U-R-O. You can see Peterson's art Harvester Arbus Harvester Artist Lofts, 1000 South Main Street, Saturday from 3 to 9 p.m., Sunday from noon to 6 p.m., and March 4th from 3 to 9 p.m., and they are asking for a $5 donation for the event. To stay up to date on the events at Harvester Artist Lofts and Gallery, visit bit.ly slash 3xmehqq. That was a great story. Council Bluff School Foundation sets a Sets Annual Education Luncheon, reads the title. This is by Tim Johnson. There's a photograph attached of the guests at the Council Bluffs Community School District Chief... As guests look at Council Bluffs Community School District Chief Academic Officer Corey Vorthman, who is delivering the keynote address during the Council Bluffs Schools Foundation Education is Everyone's Business Luncheon at the Mid-America Center on Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. There are a number of guests looking at a man at a podium, and behind him are a few banners describing the initiatives. The Council Bluff School Foundation will hold its 2023 Education is Everyone's Business from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Wednesday, March 22nd at the Mid-America Center, One Arena Way in Council Bluffs. The event is held annually to inform business and community partners of the important things happening in local schools. Executive Director Krista Ferla will deliver this year's keynote address. Teachers need us now more than ever, working together to support teachers and preserve the social, cultural, and economic health of our community and beyond. The luncheon kicks off the Foundation's annual Community Impact Campaign, a four-week drive when the Foundation provides an opportunity for donors to help make an impact in the schools by supporting children, families, and staff. The Foundation is looking for four weekly sponsors. TES Institute has continued its support and is serving at, as this year's presenting sponsor. Areas of impact include the Area of Greatest Need Fund, Student Enrichment Fund, and the Educational Excellence Fund. The Area of Greatest Need Fund provides flexibility to respond to the most critical needs of the Foundation and supports unfunded and underfunded district programs according to the Foundation's website. These funds are used to support classroom grants, student enrichment grants, and emergency assistance grants, as well as teacher, staff, and student recognition events and teacher and staff development. The Student Enrichment Fund provides programs that supplement the classroom learning experience through field trips, cultural experiences, and participation in clubs, fine arts, and co-curricular activities. In addition, the fund provides emergency assistance for children in needs of basic necessities, such as glasses, shoes, coats, and gloves. Teachers often use their own funds to purchase items to enhance the learning experience in their classroom. The Educational Excellence Fund helps alleviate that burden. To register for tickets or a sponsorship, go to cbsf.org slash luncheon. The title reads, County Board Approves Fiscal Budget Amendment Despite Technical Difficulties. This is by David Golbitz, and here it goes. The Pottawatomie County Board of Supervisors voted this week to approve a budget amendment for fiscal year 2023, which began July 1st, 2022, and ends June 30th, 2023. A handful of county departments received revenue or accrued expenses that were not accounted for in the original FY23 budget. Revenue. Conservation. $152,300 in anticipated sales of food and beverages at the Mount Crescent Ski Area. Public Health. 
$368,387 in federal grants for the hiring of a new nurse for and for women, infants, and children, assistant program funding. Expenses. Board of Supervisors. $210,000 for insurance increases due to courthouse construction, remodeling the sheriff's office, and land acquisition, including the 100 acres that compromised the Mount Crescent ski area purchase. Secondary Roads. $675,000 in fuel and materials due to inflation. Conservation, $82,300 for Mount Crescent ski area operations including food and beverages for the Mountain Cafe and Bar. Public Health, $246,976 in payroll. Non-departmental, $444,866 in bond payments. In total, the county received an additional $520,687 in revenue against $1,655,142 in expenses. Secondary Roads applied for its grants to help cover its expenses, but those grants have not yet been awarded. Because the county can't raise taxes or levies in the middle of the fiscal year to increase revenue, the remainder of the expenses are covered by a 40% surplus of the county's budget that is held in reserve to both maintain the county's bond rating and to cover unexpected expenses that occur during the year. There were some technical difficulties during the first half of the board meeting as neither the YouTube live stream or the public phone lines were working. The public hearing for the budget amendment was the first item on the board's agenda, and because of the technical issues, anyone who was not physically present was unable to comment, which concerned a couple of people in the audience, in the attendance. I'm extremely disheartened and disappointed that for whatever reason you found the need to just basically gloss over the public hearing on the budget, Shauna Anderson told the board during the public comment period at the end of the meeting. Auditor Mel Hauser, who serves as the clerk to the board, pointed out that the board did open the meeting for public comment and that board chair Brian Shea asked if anyone in the room wanted to comment. No one spoke up during the public meeting and the amendment passed five to zero. Anderson said if there, if there had been somebody on the phone, they would not have been able to participate in the public hearing, to which Hauser said that the board has held public hearings for department for decades without a phone and that concerned residents have always been welcome to attend the meetings in person. Speaking with the Daily Nonpareil after the meeting, Brian Shea said that since his election in 2020, no one has ever called to comment during a public hearing. The Pottawatomie County public comment policy states that, in part, to ensure all citizens have an opportunity to speak, any person with a disability who needs accommodation to provide public comment is requested to contact the board office at least three business days in advance of, of a meeting to request assistance. Currently, there is no county ordinance that requires public hearings to be live-streamed or that comments must be accepted via phone. Huh. This article is titled, Hundreds of Fish Dead at Big Lake. This is by Rachel George. There is a photograph attached of um, a net full of rainbow trout that Brian Hayes, a fishery biologist, is dumping into the water during a trout stocking at Big Lake Park on Friday, January 20th, 2023. Um, about 800 of the fish were brought across state to stock at Big Lake to help with the fishing conditions at the park from winter into spring. Um, a handful of families and anglers attended the stocking to fish right away. And there, and let's begin the article. A winter fish kill event has occurred at Big Lake, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. On Tuesday, February 21st, the DNR got reports that the ice was receding and people were seeing dead fish there, said Brian Hayes. 
um, Iowa DNR fisheries management biologist. We went and investigated and determined it's a winter kill event due to the oxygen sag, a somewhat natural cause. Oxygen sag reversed the reduction in dissolved oxygen along a water body. That means, for an unspecified reason, there was not enough oxygen in the lake to support these fish populations this winter. Hundreds of fish are affected, Haynes said, including most noticeably a large number of the 800 rainbow trout the DNR stocked at the lake in January. We stocked those with intent to create fish over the winter on into the spring, Hayes said. With this winter kill event, that kind of sets us back there. We hate to lose those fish. Other impacted species include portions of the lake's largemouth bass, bluegill, and channel catfish populations. The DNR wants visitors to Big Lake Park to know they are aware of the problem. They advise parkgoers to leave any dead fish they might see alone. Those fish will break down naturally within a week or two, Hayes said. Cub May, the DNR will assess surviving populations. We want fishing to be part of the park there, Hayes said. It's unfortunate. We're monitoring it and will continue to monitor the fish population in Big Lake. Our next steps will be to evaluate surviving population and anything we can do to bring it back, Hayes said. It'll be May before we can get in there with equipment to see what's survived. From there, the DNR will determine how to begin to rebuild fish populations within the lake. It might be as simple as a stocking effort, Hayes said. Or we may look at the surviving population and say the best route is to completely restart this. We know there is a common carbon there and that they have quite a negative influence on water quality, which likely contributed to this kill. Carp are bottom feeders that uproot plants which help produce oxygen underwater. When a water body ices over, the oxygen you have in the water is dependent on what was there when it was iced over and any oxygen production you might get from plants under the ice, Hayes said. We didn't have a lot of aquatic plants in Big Lake, so we assumed there was very little production of oxygen going on and enough demand, not only from fish, but al algae? Al algae and decaying plants to cause this sag. Removing the carp would take a lot more effort, Hayes said. The DNR completed such an effort in 2009, but two major floods of the Missouri River since then have likely provided avenues for rough fish to get back in the lake, he said. A couple years of dry conditions in western Iowa also likely contributed to the kill, Hayes said. The water is a foot low, he said. Big Lake is already a shallow pond. To take a foot off the top is probably a fairly significant portion of the water volume. It would have helped if we had the foot back on top there. There are two attached images. Um, one is of two dead fish, and the other is a sign to anglers that fishing without a fishing license, a trout fee is required to fish and keep trout. Oh, in addition to the Iowa fishing license. So it says, in addition to an Iowa fishing license, a trout fee is required to keep to fish for and keep trout. On Tuesday, February 21st, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources got reports that the ice was receding and people were seeing dead fish there, is in the description of the photographs. And that's the article. Fascinating. This article is the face of the day, um, and this is by Joe Shearer, the Daily Don Perel. This is a picture of Casey Brennan, who is... Who is the face of the day? Casey Brennan is keeping busy in high school. 
Brennan, 15, is a Council Bluffs native and a student at Heartland Christian School. She attended Underwood Elementary School before making the move to Heartland Christian during her third grade year. Halfway through her high school experience, Brennan said it's been a good time so far. She is active outside the classroom and said she's classmates with people she's known for years. Brennan is a student athlete playing volleyball in the fall and track in the spring. She's a frequent contributor to the Heartland Christian track team. As she takes part in most short and mid-distance medleys and individual sprints. Winter keeps going back and forth as to whether it'll end soon or not, but Brennan and her teammates are already getting into their opening practices in for the next season. She said it's a great sport to enjoy spring weather and keep in shape. Brennan is also part of Heartland Christian's drama department, and she will be performing in the school's production of Pinkerton next Monday. Pinkerton is a comedic play about a girl named Emily, who will be played by Brennan, and her crime-solving Great Dane puppy, Pinkerton. Outside of school, Brennan prefers to enjoy her time away from athletics and other activities by working out and hanging out with friends. She has plenty of time left in high school, but she said she wants to pursue a career in the medical field. Her mom is a dermatologist, and she said she just wants to work in a position where she can help better the lives of her community, especially kids. The title reads, 2023 Southwest Iowa Fish Fries. A picture is attached of Albaro Martinez of the Knights of Columbus Council, 10805, breading Pollock Phyllis during the first Fish Fry Friday of the 2022 Lent 10 season at the Queen of Apostles Corpus Christi on March 4, 2022. The article reads, Queen of Apostle Corpus Christi Catholic Church will host Fish Fry Fridays during Lent, March, February 24th through March 24th in the Church's Great Hall, 3304 4th Ave, in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Hours are 4.30 to 7 p.m. weekly. Cost is $14 for adults and $7 for children ages 10 and under. Menu offerings include fried fish, fish tacos, baked beans, bread and butter, coleslaw, macaroni and cheese, or cheese pizza for kids. Carryout is also available. Call 712-323-0014. St. Patrick Catholic Church, 4 Valley View Drive in Council Bluffs, will host Fish Fridays, fish fries on most Fridays during Lent, February 24th, March 3rd, March 10th, March 24th, and March 31st. There will be no event on March 13th, 17th due to St. Patrick's Day. Dine-in and carry-out will be available from 5 to 7 p.m. Menu includes fried or baked fish, shrimp, baked potato, coleslaw, macaroni and cheese, dessert, and a drink choice of lemonade or water. Cost is $15 for adults and $7 for children. Beer and margaritas will also be available for purchase. March 10th will be family night featuring Lowly Pop the Clown. St. Peter's Catholic Church, 1 Bluff Street, Council Bluffs, will host shrimp boils from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. on March 3rd and March 24th in the Church Social Hall. Side dishes will include coleslaw, roasted potatoes, dirty rice, and macaroni and cheese. Cost is $20 for adults and $10 for children 12 and younger. Second helpings are $5. Our Lady of the Holy Rosary Church, 24116 Marion Ave in Glenwood, will host a fish fry event every Friday during Lent, February 24th through March 21st. Both dine-in and carry-out will be available from 5 to 7 p.m. or until gone. Menu includes fried carp and pollock, baked pollock, fries, coleslaw, baked potato, macaroni and cheese, and bread. Cost is $13 for adults and $4 for children. Desserts will be provided by parish groups for, for a free will donation. St. Patrick Catholic Church, 309 3rd Street, Neola, will host a fish fry every Friday during Lent, fe February 24th through March 20 March 13th. March 31st. 
February 24th through March 31st, my bad. Hours are 5 to 7 p.m. in the parish hall. Menu includes fried Alaskan pollock, baked potato, or seeds bread, coleslaw, relishes, and dessert. Attendees may substitute a grilled cheese sandwich for fish. There is a photograph attached of a volunteer named Jim Hughes chatting with um, St. Patrick Catholic Church parishioners, the Stamp family, during the final fresh fire of the 2022 Lent season. Um, the photograph is of a man chatting with a family who are enjoying the fish fry um, dinner at a round table. That's a great article. I love fish. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Prel for Friday, February 24th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Lily Wasserman from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Here are the obituaries. Edward W. Jacobson. Uh, This includes a picture of Edward W. Jacobson, who is wearing a baseball cap. Edward W. Jacobson, age 57 of Council Bluffs, passed away suddenly on February 21, 2023, in Omaha, Nebraska. Ed was born May 10, 1965, in Council Bluffs to the late Wilbur A. and Mary Alice Ford Jacobson. He graduated from Lewis Central High School in 1983 and earned an associate's degree in business technology from IWCC. Ed married Kelly Hannafan on September 25, 1995 in Council Bluffs. He was a senior systems engineer at Woodman of the World for the past 37 years. In addition to his parents, Edward was preceded in death by his sister, Susie Seigrist. Ed is survived by his wife of 29 years, Kelly Jacobson of Council Bluffs, six sisters, Patty McComas, Carol, Chris, Richards, Janie Jacobson, Nancy Jacobson, Mary Raspier, Gail, Robert, Sorensen, many nieces and nephews. Visitation with the family, Sunday 3 to 5 p.m. at Cutler, O'Neill, Meyer, Woodring, Bayless, Park, Chapel. Funeral service, Monday 10.30 a.m. at the funeral home. A luncheon will follow at Kotas Hall, St. Peter's Catholic Church, 1 Bluff Street in Council Bluffs. Memorials are suggested to the Council Bluffs Humane Society. This is the um, obituary for Elizabeth L. Betty Flynn. This includes a picture of Elizabeth Betty Flynn. Um, Elizabeth L. Betty Flynn, age 91, formerly of Council Bluffs, passed away February 16, 2023, in Orange Park, Florida. Betty was born March 4, 1931, in Omaha, Nebraska, to the late Joseph and Dinah Puchetti Cross, and graduated from Omaha South High School in 1950. She was united in marriage to Thomas E. Flynn on July 30, 1960, but he was a homemaker and a longtime member of the Catholic faith. She was preceded by her parents, husband Tom, in 1984, sister Shirley Anderson, brother Joey, sisters-in-law Doris Chambers and Marcella Stazzoni, brother-in-law Jim Flynn. Betty is survived by son Tim Flynn and wife Billy Sue of Orange Park, of Orange Park. Grandsons, Travis Alexander Haddix and Michael Ryan Flynn. Sister-in-law, Betty Helly. Nieces and nephews, David and Denny Anderson, Ron Bill, and Raymond Sazzoni. Kathy and Mark Sazzoni. Stephen Gary Helly. Michael, Daniel, Matt, and Janet Flynn. Visitation, Friday, 5 to 7 p.m. Funeral services, Saturday, 11.30 a.m. 
all at Cutthroat O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. Betty will be buried with husband Tom in St. Joseph's Cemetery. Um, here's the sports section. Um, this is a story about girls basketball, and it includes a photo of um, two girls playing basketball, one member of the Blue Devils and one member of the Saints. And the girl in the Blue Devils is attempting to knock the ball out of the other girl's hand. This story is Saints fall one win shy of state. It includes two other photos of a girl from the Blue Devils um, trying to avoid a girl from the Saints while dribbling a basketball. Another of the girl, a girl from the Saints, um, shooting the ball while um, girls from the Blue Devils attempt to block her. Um, here we are in the final four, Hawkeyes Badgers. This is by Steve Batterson from the Quad City Times. Four things to think about following the Iowa basketball team's 64-50 loss at Wisconsin on Wednesday. One, the deja vu all over again. Iowa's 3-for-28 shooting performance from three-point range was pretty much a repeat of what transpired on, on Sunday at Northwestern when the Hawkeyes were 3-for-24 behind the arc. Coach Fran McCaffrey said during his post-game news conference at the Kohl Center, he believed Iowa was getting decent looks, including open looks, that just weren't falling. I felt the same at Northwestern, McCaffrey said. I didn't think the shots that we had were bad. You can always go back and say I wish we had worked the ball more, get a drive here, or post feed. We typically want our guys to go. We encourage them to take the open looks. It's just been two nights in a row when the shots didn't fall from three. No Hawkeye hit more than one three-point basket in the game, with Peyton Sanford going one for four and Chris Murray and Aaron Ulis each at one for five from behind the arc. Two, the defensive focus. In securing their season sweep of the Hawkeyes, the Badgers concentrated on their defen defensive efforts on Murray. Foul troubles in the first half limited the Big Ten's second leading score to 27 minutes, and he finished with a season-low five points on two for ten shooting. It was Murray's single sing second single-digit scoring effort of the season. The other came against Duke, which limited him to eight points in his final game before sitting out four injuries four games with a lower leg in injury. McCaffrey felt Wisconsin defended Murray well, but didn't really do anything Junior had seen before. They were physical, chasing him around, but that's something he gets every game, McCaffrey said. They were really paying attention to him. He hit the 1-3 and then missed a couple of bunnies he usually makes and that can weigh on you. We've just got to keep him positive. Wisconsin limited Iowa to, to four fast break points, the third lowest total of the season. And all coming in the game's first four minutes. Three, the minutes. Iowa prim primarily utilized the seven-player rotation ag again with Peyton Sanport seeing 26 minutes and Patrick McCaffrey on the court for 18 minutes. The only other Hawkeye to reserve to play in the game was John Dix, who went zero for one with one rebound and one assist in six minutes of playing time. Coach McCaffrey said whether a deeper rotation could help Iowa is one of the things he will evaluate before Saturday's 11 a.m. game against Michigan State. I don't think fatigue was a problem, he said. Chris didn't play much in the first half. Patrick was fresh. Aaron Ulis was fresh. I thought from an energy standpoint, we were fine. We went with our bets. The guys have been going with. 4. The attack mode. Wisconsin helped itself by attacking Iowa, Iowa's pressure more effectively in the second half. After turning the ball over eight times in the first 20 minutes, the Badgers gave it, 
it away on just three occasions in the second half. McCaffrey said that the Hawkeyes did not do a good job of anticipating on the press in the second half, simply reacting. When you're pressing, obviously you're exposing more areas of the floor. That's why a lot of coaches won't press because all you're doing is giving the other team more space, McCaffrey said. If you're going to press, you've got to read body language. You've got to read where people are, where people are cutting to, where you think they're cutting to, and get some deflections and a couple seals. You can't just rely on them to throw it away. That's not typically part of the Badgers' DNA, anyway. I just thought maybe we were back in our heels a beat bit more than we should have been, McCaffrey said. If you're going to press, you've got to go after people. This photograph includes a picture taken by Annie Manis of the Associated Press. It is of Wisconsin's Chucky Hepburn reaching for the ball that is currently held by Iowa's Aaron Ulis during the first half of Wednesday's night's game in Madison, Wisconsin. I don't know a lot about basketball, but that's pretty interesting. Um, here's an article. Well, here's a picture. Uh, the Cardinals lose heartbreaker in region final. Um, it is a picture of the Cardinal members consulting each other. Um, they are a basketball team. And there's another picture of a Cardinal um, player um, attempting to throw the ball while a, another player from Panorama is attempting to block her. Here is um, an article called Key Dates by Jay Cohen from the Associated Press. So many returns for baseball this summer. Some happy, some not so much. Here are dates to, to remember for the coming season. Tuesday, March 30th. Chicago White Sox at Houston Astros. Jose Altuve and the Astros get another opportunity to celebrate the franchise's second World Series championship when they host Tim Anderson and the White Sox on opening day. Houston beat Philadelphia in six games to take home the title last year. It's also a reunion for first baseman Jose Abrero, who signed a three-year contract with the Astros in November after spending the past nine seasons with the White Sox. Tuesday, April 18th, Los Angeles Angels at New York Yankees. On the 100th anniversary of the opening of the original Yankee Stadium marked by a Babe Ruth home run, Shohei Otani and the Los Angeles Angels open up a three-game set at the new Yankee Stadium. Despite another stellar season by Otani, the Angels went 73-89 last year in the franchise's seventh consecutive losing season. Friday, April 28th, Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets. The longtime rivals play for the first time since their NL East race last year. After Atlanta rallied for the division title and New York was eliminated in the first round of the playoffs, Mets owner Steve Cohen went on an epic spending spree that included additions of pitchers Justin Verlander and Kodai Senga. Atlanta lost all-star shortstop Dansby Swanson in free agency, but it acquired catcher Sean Murphy in a three-team trade in December. Monday, May 1st, Philadelphia Phillies at Los Angeles Dodgers. Trey Turner and Philadelphia visit Freddie Freeman in Los Angeles for a matchup as NL contenders. Turner played for the Dodgers last year, batting .298 with 21 homers and a career-high 100 RBIs. The all-star all shortstop then signed a $300 million 11-year contract with the Phillies in December. Philadelphia will begin the season without Bryce Harper after the slugger had right elbow surgery in November, but he is expected to return to the lineup by the All-Star break. Friday, June 16th, New York Yankees at Boston Red Sox. Aaron Judge and the Yankees make their first 2023 trip to Fenway, to Fenway Park for the opener of a weekend series against Rafael Den Devers and the Red Sox. New York went 13-6 against Boston last year, outscoring the Red Sox 109-76. to 
but the rivals play 13 times this season because of a baseball's new balance schedule. New York added Car- Carlos Rodon to its rotation in December, while Boston signed Japanese outfield Masataka Yoshida during a relatively quiet winter. Saturday, June 24th, Chicago Cubs at L- St. Louis Cardinals. Baseball returns to London Stadium when Ian Happ and the Cubs take out Wilson Contreras and the Cardinals. The NL Central rivals were supposed to play in London in 2020, but the games were canceled because of the coronavirus pandemic. Contreras signed an $87.5 million five-year contract with St. Louis in December, joining one of Chicago's biggest rivals after spending his first seven seasons with the Cubs. The Cardinals' first game of the season at Wrigley Field is May 8th. Tuesday, July 11th, All-Star Game in Seattle. The All-Star Game heads to Emerald City for the first time since 2001 and the third time overall. The last time Seattle hosted the Midsummer Classic, Carl Ripken Jr. homered to lead the American League to a 4-1 victory over Barry Bonds at the National League. Mariners star uh, Julio Rodriguez was the first runner-up to Juan Soto in last year's home run derby, and the dynamic outfielder will have plenty of support if he decides to try the event again this year at T-Mobile Park. Monday, August 28th, Texas Rangers at the New York Mets. Ace right-hander Jacob deGrom returns to New York after signing an $185 million five-year contract with Texas over the winter. The 34-year-old deGrom spent his first nine seasons with the Mets, winning two um, C.Y. Young awards while being one of the major's most dominant pitchers, but he was hampered by injuries the past two years. With the addition of DeGrom and Nathan Nivaldi, Texas is looking to challenge Houston for the AL West title. Wednesday, September 6th, Minnesota Twins at the Cleveland Guardians. The Twins and Guardians meet for the last time in the regular season in the afternoon finale of a three-game series. Minnesota is looking to return to the playoffs after an off-season highlighted by $200 million six-year deal with Carlos Correa. Cleveland won the AL Central last year for the first time since 2018, finishing 14 games ahead of the third-place Twins. The Guardians added some power to their lineup when they signed first baseman John Bell to a two-year contract. Wednesday, September 13th, San Diego Padres at the Los Angeles Dodgers. Manny Machado and San Diego conclude their season series against Mookie Betts in Los Angeles with the finale of a three-game set. The Dodgers won the NL West title in 2022 for the ninth time in 10 years, but they were eliminated by the second-place Padres in their NL division series. San Diego made one of the most surprising moves of the offseason, signing shortstop Xander Bogarts to a $280 million 11-year contract. Los Angeles was pretty quiet over the winter, but it still has one of the major's deepest rosters. Sunday, October 1st, Tampa Bay Rays at Toronto Blue Jays. Tampa Bay finishes the regular season with a three-game set in Toronto at an AL East matchup. The Rays made the playoffs in 2022 for the fourth straight year, but they were swept by Cleveland in the wildcard round. A healthy season from infielder Wander Franco could also provide a big boost for Tampa Bay. Toronto also made the playoffs last year, and it could be even better this season after signing Chris Bassett in free agency and acquiring slugger Dalton Varsho in a trade with Arizona. There are pictures attached. One is of the Astros celebrating their victory um, against the Philadelphia Phillies last year. It is of um, the infielder Altuve hugging um, the relief pitcher Presley. Um, they will get the two of them, Altuve, Altuve and the Astros, will get their rings on opening day on March 30th. There's another picture attacked of Trey Turner from the Philadelphia Phillies buttoning up his Philadelphia Phillies jersey. I'm really excited for the baseball season this year. I'm a big Phillies fan. <laughs>
Um, here's another story. Um, Almada Sh- um, Chicharito among MLS players to watch this season. This is by Tim Booth of the Associated Press. This is about soccer. The biggest winner in the Major League Soccer offseason transfer market ended up being the rumor mill. Whether it was a pl- the apparent flirtation between Lionel Messi and Inter Miami, or the interest that the Los Angeles FC had for Chelsea striker Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, neither came to fruition and the MLS offseason was devoid of a splashy incoming international move. But there are still plenty of stars across the MLS to watch for during the 2023 season that begins on Saturday. Um, Jesus Ferreira of FC Dallas. Ferreira um, uh, finally scored his potential last season as he scored 18 goals for FC Dallas, tying for the fourth most in the league. He helped the team finish third in the Western Conference and reach the Western Conference semifinals before they were knocked out of the playoffs by Austin. His time with the MLS club meant that he played only a limited role for the United States in the World Cup. He didn't hit the field in Qatar until the round of 16 loss to the Netherlands. He begins building his case this season to become one of the primary strikers on future U.S. teams. Hany Mukhtar of Nashville The reigning league MVP was spectacular last season with 23 goals and 11 assists, helping Nashville finish, finish fifth in Western Conference and earn a playoff berth. Mukhtar's 34 goals were the, most, were the fifth most in a single season in MLS history. In his three seasons with Nashville, Mukhtar has 43 goals in 73 games, and there's no reason to think he's about to slow down this season. Andre Blake, Philadelphia. The best goalkeeper in the league last year is the most recognizable star for a team that lacks big names but is a clear favorite in the Eastern Conference. Philadelphia was moments away from winning its first MLS title in November before LAFC scored late in extra time and went on penalties. Philadelphia was in the final in large part because of Blake's continued excellence in goal. Blake led MLS in, sh- Blake led MLS in shutouts with 15 and had a 79.4 save percentage last season, the third time he was honored as the league's best goalie. Cuto Hernandez from Columbus. The latest young South American star to join MLS made quite a splash in his limited debut last season. Hernandez had nine goals and two assists in just 16 games from the Columbus crew following his move from Watford. A full season with the crew should be a big boost as Columbus looks to get back to the postseason after missing the playoffs by two points last season. Javier Chicharito Hernandez from the LA Galaxy. The ageless Mexican star stepped back into the past and led the LA Galaxy to a playoff berth last season. Chicharito had 18 goals and played in 32 matches, both highs since he moved to MLS. They were the most goals for Hernandez in any season since 2009-10, when he scored 21 in his final season with them, Hivas de Guadalajara. Um, Josef Martinez from Inter Miami. While rumors swirled about Lionel Messi and bringing the World Cup champion to Inter Miami, the club had a backup plan in place. How successful that plan is depends on whether Martinez can recover the form that made him the league's MVP in 2018 with Atlanta United. Martinez hasn't been the same since suffering a major knee injury at the start of the 2020 season. And while posting consecutive seasons of 31 and 27 goals is going to be tough to match, Miami is hoping he can be more than the 9-goal scorer he was last season with Atlanta. We'll step into a larger role this season for Atlanta United following the departure of Martinez to Miami. Almada appeared in 29 games and had 6 goals and 7 assists last season. Atlanta will be hoping that Almada can quickly develop a relationship with the new forward Giorgio Giacomakis, who just arrived from Celtic. Sean Johnson, Toronto. After 6 years as the anchor at the back of her NYCFC, including an MLS Cup title, Johnson made the move to Toronto FC in the offseason. Johnson was second in MLS 
um, with 14 clean sheets last season. His task in Toronto will be significant as the Reds were third worst in the MLS by giving up 66 goals last season. Wow, Paulo, Seattle. The Seattle Sounders missed the MLS playoffs for the first time in the franchise history last season, ending a 13-year run of playing in the postseason. Seattle's season, Seattle's season seemed to crumble after the Sounders won the CONCACAF Champions League a night when they made MLS history but lost midfield spark plug while Paolo to a torn ACL on his right knee. Paolo is back playing, making a brief appearance for Seattle during its one match at the Club, Club World Cup. His return should stabilize Seattle's midfield and once again make the Sounders one of the favorites out west. Council Bluffs Police Arrest Suspect in Omaha Shooting by Molly Ashford of the Omaha World Herald. Authorities in Iowa have arrested a suspect in connection with the shooting that left an Omaha man in critical condition Wednesday afternoon. Omaha police were called to an all-nations grocery liquor and tobacco at 24th and Leavenworth Streets shortly before 1.40 p.m. Wednesday. There, they found Durante Orduna, 33, inside of the store with a gunshot wound. Orduna was taken to the Nebraska Medical Center in critical condition. The hospital could not provide an update on his condition Thursday. According to Thursday, update from the Omaha Police Department, Council Bluffs Police arrested a 27-year-old suspect in connection with the shooting. The suspect was arrested at the Council Bluffs Hotel and taken to the Pottawatomie County Jail. Douglas County authorities have not filed charges related to the shooting. Council Bluffs Police arrested the suspect on suspicion of marijuana possession and being a felon in possession of a firearm. The title of this article is, Is Tim Scott Running for President? Time Will Tell, by Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette, Des Moines Borough. Des Moines. Standing behind a mural of Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go, painted at the wall of the library of the St. Andrew, St. Anthony Catholic School, U.S. Senator Tom, Tim Scott spoke to reporters Wednesday about restoring hope and creating opportunities, including giving more options to parents and increasing the quality of education. The South Carolina Senator and prospective 2024 Republican presidential candidate toured the school along Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and met with parents as part of his Faith in America listening tour. Scott also spoke at Drake University and was scheduled to address an annual Polk County Republican fundraiser Wednesday night. Conservatism is my personal proof that there is no ceiling in life. I can go as high as my character, my education, and my perseverance will take me. I bear witness to that. Scott was expected to say at the event, according to excerpts shared with reporters. So, for all of the, you on the left, you can call me a prop, you can call me a token, you can call me the M-word, you can question my blackness, you can even call me Uncle Tim. Just understand, your words are no match for my evidence. The truth of my life disproves your lies. He and Reynolds visited a kindergarten Spanish immersion classroom and spoke with 8th graders. Scott recalled speaking with a single mother of four with students enrolled in school and mentioned his own upbringing. I was blessed to be raised from a strong, powerful single mom, and the best thing I can do today is make sure the single moms of today have the best and brightest future for their kids and themselves, Scott told reporters. And that's why I started the Faith in America tour. Too often, our country seems to be polarized by black and white or red and blue. The truth is that we are one American family, and the more we focus on that unity we have, the better off the future of the nation. He applauded Reynolds for her leadership in passing a private school funding bill last month that creates state-funded scholarships that Iowa families could use to send their children to private schools. The nonpartisan legislative service agency estimates that the program, when fully phased in, will cost $345 million a year. 
Seeing the power of school choice, knowing that these kids have an unlimited future to the extent that we can best capitalize that and share it and spread it, it's good news for the country, Scott said. Opponents of the law say it will siphon money out of public schools to fund private institutions that aren't subject to the same oversight as public schools and devote tax money to schools that could turn away students based on disabilities or personal values. Reynolds reiterated her point Wednesday that the program is not at odds with public schools. It will make education overall elevated, she told reporters. And I've said a hundred thousand times, this is not a zero-sum game. We want our public schools and our private schools to do well. But most importantly, we want parents, all parents, not just those who can afford it, to have the opportunity to decide what their environment looks like. Scott has been a recurring president in Iowa over the last two years, including campaigning for for Republican candidates ahead of the 2022 November midterm election. He deflected questions this fall about his future plans, stating the only office he planned to run for was president of his homeowners association. Asked Wednesday if he's changed his answer, Scott said, well, the homeowners association said they've They've already said no. I'm working on that part of the answer, he said, which involves gathering feedback from Iowans. As I hear more from the constituents here in Iowa and around the country, it will give me more information on what to do next, Scott said. He did not provide a timeline on making a decision. Asked what advice she had to share with Scott, Reynolds, who has said she intends to remain neutral and not endorse anyone ahead of Iowa's Republicans first in the nation presidential caucuses in 2024, said, come to Iowa, come often. Scott's visit comes a day after fellow South Carolina and newly announced Republican presidential candidate and former UN ambassador Nikki Haley stepped in Myron Marion for a campaign event in the early GOP nominating state. Scott did not respond to a reporter's question as he left the library about his reaction to Haley's campaign. Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart, in a statement, criticized Scott for putting special interests ahead of working families as as an architect of the 2017 GOP passed tax cuts, which made significant si- several, several significant changes to the individual income tax. Hart, too, criticized Scott's record supporting policies to limit abortions and that could jeopardize Medicare and Social Security, and calling to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Nothing Tim Scott says to Iowans today will erase his extreme record, Hart said. This includes a photograph of Tim Scott. Scott speaking at St. Anthony's Catholic School on Wednesday in Des Moines as part of his Faith in America listening tour. Um, Scott is standing in front of the Oh, the Place You'll Go mural, and two reporters are on the side of him listening and holding out microphones. The rest, um, there's a classroom in the back of it. This article is about the war in Ukraine and is called Conflict Reaches One Year. This is by, this is from the Associated Press. Both sides prepare for new disastrous phase, UN votes on resolution. For Russia, it's been a year of bold charges and bombardments, humiliating retreats, and grinding sieges. Ukraine countered with fierce resistance, surprising counteroffensives, and unexpected hit-and-run strikes. Now, on the anniversary of Russia's February 24, 2022 invasion that has killed tens of thousands and reduced cities to ruins, both sides are preparing for a potentially even more disastrous phase. Russia intensified its push to capture all of Ukraine's eastern industrial heartland of the Donbass. Kiev and Western allies say Moscow could try to launch a wider, more ambitious attack elsewhere along the more than 600-mile front line. Ukraine is waiting for battle tanks and other new weapons pledged by the West for it to reclaim occupied areas. What's nowhere in sight is a settlement. The Kremlin insists it must include the recognition of the Crimean Peninsula, which which it annexed illegally in 2014. 
along with the acceptance of its other territorial gains. Ukraine categorically rejects those demands and rules out talks until Russia withdraws all forces. The UN General Assembly approved non-binding resolution Thursday that calls for Russia to end hostilities in Ukraine and demands the withdrawal of its forces. The 141-7 to vote, with 32 abstentions, was slightly below the highest vote for the five previous resolutions approved by the 193-member world body since Russia sent troops and tanks across the border into its smaller neighbor a year ago. Foreign ministers and diplomats from more than 75 countries addressed the assembly during two days of debate, with many urging support for the resolution that upholds Ukraine's territorial integrity. Experts warn that Europe's largest conflict since World War II could drag on for years, and some fear it could lead to a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO. Putin repeatedly said that Russia could use all available means to protect its territory, a clear reference to its nuclear arsenal. In recent months, Russian forces have tried to encircle the Ukrainian stronghold of Bakhmut and push deeper into the Donetsk region. Moscow also aims to wear down Ukrainian forces and prevent them from starting offensives elsewhere. The U.S. wants to see tougher and more effectively enforced sanctions against Russia. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said Thursday during meetings of the group of 20 leading economies in the Indian technology hub of Bengaluru. She said the U.S. expects to provide another $10 billion in assistance to Ukraine on top of the more than $46 billion already given. China mine collapse. This includes a photograph of people gathering at a checkpoint on Thursday alongside of an open collapsed mine pit in Alxa League in northern China's Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region. This is a photograph of families um, and two cars gathering near what is the collapsed mine, but does not show the collapsed mine. Rescuers Search for Survivors is the title of the um, article, and the photograph is by Ng Han Guan from the Associated Press. The article itself is by Ng Han Guan as well. Um, more than 48 more bodies recovered, but 48 still reported missing after landslide. Oxa League, China. Rescuers with backhoes and bulldozers dug through tons of earth and rubble for 48 people missing a day after a landslide buried an open pit mine in northern China. State broadcaster CCTV reported the confirmed death toll rose to five. Conditions in the area remained dangerous, and the search had to be suspended for several hours because of the second landslide at the gigantic faculty facility in Inner Mongolia's Alxa League. On Thursday afternoon, more than a dozen bulldozers, trucks, SUVs, and fire engines were seen passing through a remote police checkpoint about 15 miles southwest of the mine. Nearly all personnel were stopped by police and checked for entry approvals before being allowed to proceed along the road leading to the mine. A police officer said only those with government approval would be allowed to access the area. She said people living close to the mine were sent to stay in a nearby town. Security was also tightened at another checkpoint in the neighboring area of Nicha, nine miles east of the mine, with dozens of officials inspecting every vehicle that sought to pass in either direction. Cranes and other pieces of heavy equipment could be seen, along with covered trucks. Rescuers used heavy digging equipment and cameras that could snake down into the debris, along with thermal images and equipment to detect vital signs. Chang Jigang, uh, head of the rescue operation, said Thursday, crews were using extreme caution to avoid more secondary disasters, Chang said. We will continue to increase the rescue force t- race after time and do our best to search and rescue the lives of every trapped person, he said. Police are investigating the cause of the collapse, and some people have been detained, Chang said. We will publicize the result in the investigation in due course, he added. The initial cave-in of one of the pit's balls occurred about 1 p.m. Wednesday, burying people in mining trucks and tons of rocks and sand. It was followed about five hours later by the additional landslide 
forcing the work's suspension. The official um, Xinhua News Agency said that about 900 rescuers with heavy equipment were on the scene and they resumed the search by Thursday morning. Um, Chinese President Xi Jinping calls for an all-out effort in search and rescue and for ensuring the safety of people's lives and property and maintaining overall social stability. This article is called NTSB Train Crew Got Alert Too Late in Crash. Um, report released as Buttigieg makes first visit to a derailment site is by John Sewer, Michael Rubicom, Rubinicom, and Joff Mulvinhill from the Associated Press. East Palestine, Ohio. The crew operating a freight train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, did not receive a critical warning about an overheated axle until just before dozens of cars went off the tracks. Federal safety investigators said in a report Thursday as U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg made his first visit to the crash site. An engineer slowed and stopped the train after getting a critical audible alarm message, according to a preliminary report by the National Transportation Safety Board. The crew then saw fire and smoke and alerted dispatch of a possible derailment, the report said. The axle investigators are fo- focusing are focused on what had been heating up as the train went down the tracks but did not stop the threshold for stopping the train and inspecting it until just before the derailment, the report said. The train had been going just about 47 miles an hour at the time, just under the speed limit of 50 miles per hour, according to safety investigators. Ohio Republican Lieutenant Governor John Husted told CNN ahead of the report's release that its findings had the potential to form the basis of a criminal referral form from the state. He also said railroad company Norfolk Southern should temporarily relocate people who continue to feel unsafe or even consider buying their property. And that brings us to the end of day's reading at the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, February 24th. The Nonpareil can be heard every weekday at 3 p.m. IRS volunteers love, would love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any IRS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Lily Wasserman from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.